hope that you'll turn with me in a Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we look together at verses 36 to 43, verses 36 to 43. And what we have here is the third scene in Luke's account of Jesus' resurrection. And in each scene, Luke provides to us, he's highlighting a different aspect of what Jesus' resurrection means to us and for us. In the first scene, we have the empty tomb witnessed by the women, and we have the disciples' failure to believe them. But he wants to bear down on the fact that the tomb is empty. Something happened to the body of Jesus. It was empty. And then, last Sunday, we looked at the account of the two disciples walking to a place called Emmaus. They're leaving Jerusalem. They've decided Jerusalem is not a place that holds out any hope for them. They've been let down and disappointed. They'd hoped that Jesus was the one that was going to redeem Israel, but alas, it doesn't appear that that's the case because he died in a very seemingly helpless way. And they've heard about the empty tomb, but they just can't believe it. And yet Jesus himself shows up to them along the way. He opens up the scriptures to them and he shows them that it was necessary for the Christ, for the Messiah, to die, to atone for the sins of his people, and to be raised on the third day. And it is when the disciples encounter Jesus breaking bread that their eyes are open and they recognize him, showing us that we can encounter the Lord Jesus through the Holy Spirit now by means of the scriptures, by means of the ordinances, the Lord's Supper, baptism, and through prayer. But now we come to Jesus' appearance to the 11. Once the 12, but now the 11 disciples. Judas betrayed Jesus, killed himself, and is no longer among them. But we have the 11 here. And we have this scene when the two disciples have encountered Jesus. Now they go back and they report all this. And they're both reporting the same news. It's true, the Lord has risen. But now Luke is bearing down on exactly what it was that happened to the body of Jesus. And I want us to think together today about what it was that happened to the body of Jesus and what that means for us and how we live. So let's read together beginning at verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why did doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe, 
did not believe it because of joy and amazement. He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. So let's walk through this and make sure we're all clear on what Luke is emphasizing to us in this scene. What is this passage saying to us? We have the disciples talking about their various encounters with Jesus. He's shown up to them in various ways. And then Jesus himself stands among them and he says, peace be with you. Now, peace was a a typical Jewish greeting of the time, shalom. But when Jesus, as the resurrected one, says peace, there's a far deeper significance, a far deeper meaning. Jesus is the one who can offer peace, who can reconcile sinners to God the Father. And so when he says peace, he can give peace. He is a peacemaker and the giver of peace. He is the prince of peace. But there's also significance in the fact that when the disciples last met him, they weren't exactly on great terms. As you'll recall, they abandoned him in the garden. They scattered. They ran. They were scared to death. And now when he encounters them, he doesn't rebuke them initially. He says, peace be with you. Peace. We might also be surprised by the fact that they're startled and frightened. Haven't they already been convinced that he's risen? Why are they so scared when now he's standing right in front of them? Well, the answer is because they think they're seeing a ghost. And the word there is literally spirit, pneuma, a ghost. They think what they're seeing is a disembodied person, an apparition, a vision, maybe even a hallucination. And for all of us, that's a little spooky. Even people who enjoy watching spooky movies do so because they kind of like stoking that fear instinct that we all have. There's just something about the paranormal that's a little creepy and scary. But to push a little further, what's so creepy and scary about it? Well, it's, it's this other reality, this other world breaking into our lives. And that's often something we see as threatening. What are they going to do? What are they going to say? What does this mean? Are they going to hurt me? And that's what they're thinking. That this is a ghost. Something threatening. And the way Jesus reassures them is to show them that he has flesh and bones, just like they do. That he is risen from the dead. It's really him. He has a literal, material body. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. It is I. I am. More literally. And he says, why do doubts rise in your hearts? In your hearts. The NIV translates it minds because the biblical heart thinks and the gateway to the heart is the mind. He does want them to think about this, but literally 
It's their hearts. Why are doubts rising in your hearts? Believe from your heart. Acknowledge from your heart that it's really me. So he, he invites them to touch, to see, to feel. He has real flesh and bones. And then the ultimate sign, you got anything to eat? And he literally just says, do you have anything edible here? Well, some broiled fish, common fare, nothing fancy. Didn't know you were coming, Jesus, but they grabbed some broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence right before them. They saw him chew it. They saw him swallow. That's the confirmation that Jesus really rose from the dead. And so the overall teaching of this passage, what we need to be clear about is that Jesus rose with a literal and yet glorified body. He rose with a literal and yet glorified body. This passage is showing us that there's both this continuity and this discontinuity. And we're going to show exactly what this means for how we live, what the significance of all this is, but we need to be clear and unmistakable in what this is asserting. This passage is asserting. Luke includes this passage to show us the corporeal, tangible, material reality of Jesus' resurrection. This is a real body that can eat broiled fish. A real body whose hands and feet you can see and touch. And it's the same Jesus who was born in a manger. It's the same Jesus who walked and who taught and who performed miracles and who challenged his disciples, rebuked his disciples, comforted his disciples. It's really him. It's the same Jesus who was executed on a Roman cross, whose hands were pierced by Roman nails, whose feet were pierced by Roman nails, who really died and who was really placed in a tomb. That same Jesus, that same body has been raised to new life. And he's standing there right in the midst of his disciples eating broiled fish. Same Jesus. And yet there's also this radical discontinuity. It's him. It's a real body. You, you could, if you had been there, you could have touched and seen and watched him eat fish as well. But there's this discontinuity. Because now, this is a body that will not die. This is a body that can ascend to the right hand of God the Father and will, as we'll see, ascend to the right hand of God the Father. This is a body that can show up even in the midst of locked rooms. This is a body that is recognizable and at the same time they seem to have a hard time recognizing him. They're, they're looking right at him. They hear his voice. There's something familiar, but can it really be him? A glorified body, a perfected body, a body that is not subject to aging and arthritis and disease and death. That's what Luke is bearing down on. Why? Why? What is the significance of this? Who cares if he can eat broiled fish or not? 
Why does this matter? I want to give you four reasons this matters. Four reasons this affects the way you live your life this week. Because Jesus rose with a literal and yet glorified body, number one, therefore, our bodies are affirmed by God to reflect the goodness of his creation. Because Jesus was resurrected with a literal, material, tangible body, God is affirming the goodness of his creation. Why does that matter? Well, throughout human history, there have been various schools of thought, and they're very much still with us. And they're, they're schools of thought that can sometimes creep into the thinking of the church that say something like, we need to escape from material reality. And that immaterial existence, spiritual existence, is somehow superior to material reality. And you see this especially in ancient Greek philosophy, the teaching of Plato, that the, the, the soul is imprisoned in the body. And you can see why they would think this. I mean, just think of all our bodily ailments, right? All kinds of bodily ailments. I don't need to tell you. You know. Just think of your own. We all have them. And, and if we don't have them now, they're coming for all of us, right? These bodies are subject to decay. They're aging. They're dying as I speak. And so you can see why people would think, well, this can't be a superior form of existence. This, this body can't be good. What we need is to get out of this. What we need is some disembodied reality. We need to be liberated and freed from the material. And this shows up in Eastern religions too. We need, to, we need to attain to some spiritual state, some state of nirvana, right? It shows up in all different forms, but the teaching is fundamentally the same. Material reality is not the best. It may even be bad. But nothing could be further from the truth of God's Word. What does God's Word say? God's Word says in Genesis 1, that it's good. God looks upon material creation. He looks upon the creation of man and woman, male and female, and he says, it's good. And following the creation of human beings, it's very good. When he sees the whole, it's very good. Our bodies are part of the goodness of creation. And again, this is something that's so much more controversial than it should be. Because our bodies, including our genders, reflect the goodness of creation. God made you, you, with the body you have. But the thinking so often today is if you don't really like your body, aesthetically, if you don't like the way it looks, you don't like the way it feels, you don't think you are inhabiting the right gender for your body, well, there's a remedy for that. We can change that somehow. There's surgery, there's medicine, there, there are all kinds of remedies that we can do to change that. 
But the resurrection of Jesus says that the human body is good. If there was a time for Jesus to be liberated from the human body, that would be the time. He affirms the goodness of creation by his incarnation. He becomes one of us. He takes on a human body like yours. And if there was a time to be liberated from that, surely it would be the resurrection, would it not? And yet, that's not what happens. He has a material, literal body. Glorified, yes. Transformed, yes. Perfected, yes. But it's still a material body. So what we need is to have these bodies transformed to be purified and glorified by God's grace. Not to be liberated or escape from them. The goodness of God's creation. So now someone says, okay, so it affirms the goodness of God's creation. Well, why is there cancer? Why is there arthritis? Why is it that we can so often feel so bound by our bodies? Our bodies don't do the things we want them to do. We feel so restricted and confined and, and limited by them. Why? How could that be good? How could God look at that and say that's good? This is where sin comes in. Death, disease, aches and pains, crying, mourning, working in a painful way. All these things are the result of the fall because Adam and Eve, our ancestors, decided that God's good creation wasn't good enough for them. That they could do better by listening to the voice of the deceiver. And we follow suit. As soon as we are able, we also deny the goodness of God's creation. We think we can do better. We don't need God's instructions. We don't need to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't need to love our, our neighbors as ourselves. We can do better. So we turn away from God, and we suppress the truth about ourselves and about God. And as a result, you and I will die as a direct result of God's judgment on human sinfulness. It is appointed, says Hebrews 9, for people to die once and then to face the judgment. And that will determine whether or not we face the second death, the eternal death. But the resurrection of Jesus says God's creation is good. And what Jesus came to do is to redeem material creation. To redeem us. And so the second reason this matters is that salvation involves the whole person. Body and spirit. Spirit and body, all of you. And this matters because sometimes we can think, well, what Jesus did only pertains to your soul. He came to just save your soul, to change your spirit, to give you new birth, regeneration in your spirit. And of course he did, but that's not the end of the story. Because as long as we're in this body, we can all affirm what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 21. See if this doesn't resonate with your experience. This is my experience. 
So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the gospel. What needs to happen in your life and in my life is for the Holy Spirit to take up residence in your heart, to give you a new nature, a nature that is conformed to the image of Christ and that is being sanctified from the inside out, that is becoming more and more like Christ. That's what you need. But alongside that new nature, the old self, the sinful self, the self that's subject to the law of sin and death, it's in me and it's in you. Can anybody testify to that? (laughs) I want to do what's right. But right alongside that, I have this other law at work within me, this other principle in me. It's killing me. And it will kill me if I'm not rescued. And thanks be to God, there is someone who can deliver me, who can deliver you, if you'll repent of your sins and trust in Him. He is the resurrected one who atoned for your sins on the cross, for the sins of all His people, and who was raised to new life. And you can be united with Him, body and soul. You can be united with Him so that now, When the Father looks upon you, He sees the righteous obedience of His Son, Jesus Christ, in place of your filthy rags of unrighteousness. That's the Gospel. Thanks be to God, there is a Savior. And thanks be to God, this salvation is not limited to the spiritual realm. This is bodily. This is tangible. This is material. This affects how you live this week. And in light of that, the third implication of this is, therefore, what we do with our bodies matters. What we do with our bodies matters. Jesus came to save all of you. All of you. Not just part of you, not just the spiritual part. All of you, body and soul. But there's confusion in the church today about this, just as there was confusion in the church in Corinth about this issue. And this is what the Apostle Paul is having to address in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In verse 13, he says, You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. In other words, what really matters is the spiritual. We're spiritual people. What happens to the body? Eh, Not so much. Food for the stomach, God's going to destroy them both. All of this, these things don't last. And here's Paul's answer. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. 
but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All their sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What you do with your body matters. But the Corinthians are thinking, no, no, no. Spiritually, I'm fine, right? My heart's in the right place. So what if I indulge in some pleasure here and there? So what if I engage in some sexual morality? My spirit's right. That's good enough. Doesn't God just care about that? No, says Paul. If you have been born again, that means the Holy Spirit has chosen to take up residence in your heart, your body. This is not everyone's body. This is the body of the believer, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is precious. There is a holy, extraordinary work taking place in your heart. Be mindful of that. Don't take that pure, extraordinary, sanctifying work that's underway and then abuse it by abusing your body and someone else's body in the process. Flee from that. Run from that. Turn your back on that. Repent of that. It only leads to death and hurt, and it will drive a wedge between you and the Savior who came to save you, all of you, body and soul. It matters what you do with your body. This is the body that God wants to redeem, and if you belong to him, he is redeeming, and one day he will glorify. He will glorify. And this brings us to the fourth point. Therefore, our hope for the future is an embodied hope. It is an embodied hope. And no passage addresses this more clearly than 1 Corinthians chapter 15. An embodied hope. Sometimes, even people in the church can think that what we're looking forward to is going off to be in heaven and to be in the clouds and maybe to play harps and just to enjoy this disembodied existence, this spiritual reality. And, and this goes hand in hand with thinking that that is better than material reality. What the Bible proclaims, though, is that your spirit, your soul, the immaterial part of who you are, is meant to be united with your body, the material part of who you are. They are naturally together. And death is something unnatural that ruptures that unity that should exist. And that rupture is only temporary for all of us. So that, yes, this body is going to rot in the grave. It's subject to corruption. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And yes, our spirits, if we trust in Christ, go to be with God and if we do not trust in Christ, if we do not trust in the resurrection, they go to a place of suffering. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that the same Jesus who was crucified, buried, and rose again will return. And when he does so, all the dead will be raised to face judgment for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. And there will be a final division 
some going to the presence of God and eternal life, some to eternal misery in hell. That is what the future holds. An embodied reality, not off in the clouds, but a new heaven and a new earth, a material, tangible reality. But some in Corinth are saying, we just can't believe that. Come on, Paul. Come on, Paul. What we believe is a spiritual reality. Enough of this materiality. That's, that's something debased, corrupt. Well, after Paul outlines that the gospel itself, Christianity itself, depends on the bodily, literal resurrection of Jesus. If he didn't rise from the dead, then I'm wasting my time, you're wasting your time, and we better just lock up the doors and sell this property because we have no basis for being here if he has not risen from the dead. It all rides on this. Here's how he makes this so pointed and clear in verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. It's all vain. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. I'm lying about God today if this isn't true. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. It all rides on this. Do you see that? It all stands or falls on this doctrine, on this truth. Our hope is an embodied hope. Our hope is that what happened to Jesus, what happened to his body, is what will happen to us if we trust in him, that we also can enjoy a glorified body, that we can know a reality where there is no more pain, there is no more mourning or crying, there is no more death. We're freed from that. It's bodily, yes. It's material, yes. But no more aches and pains. Do you long for that day? It's an embodied hope. Our hope is real for a new heaven and a new earth. And so that brings me to this summary. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't an idea to debate, which is how we often treat it. It's an idea to debate. Some people want to argue this point or that point. Well, I don't think this is likely or that seems more plausible. Like It's not an idea to debate. It's the event upon which all history turns. And every person will be judged for eternity. Your eternal destiny, heaven and hell, eternal life or eternal death, depends on what you say about this one who eats broiled fish. Who says, can a ghost do this? Does a ghost have flesh and bones? Can a ghost eat broiled fish? It all rides on this. This is the turning point of history. This is what it's all been leading up to, and everything that happens after this hinges on this event, this historical event happening in time, in space. 
And so in view of that, there are three possible responses. One would be to just reject it out of hand. Just reject it out of hand. It's just simply not possible. Dead people don't come back to life. And this objection is not a new one. You think of when the Apostle Paul is in the great city of Athens, in Acts 17, in Luke's second volume of his work. Paul is holding his own with the academics, the intellectuals, the thinkers. And they're open to hearing from him up to a point. They like this idea that there's a God they've never heard of. They like the idea that this God created all things. They like the idea that this God has sent one man to be the judge of all. But when Paul says he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead, the resurrection, that's when they cannot listen anymore. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. It's kind of interesting. I want to hear a little more. Let's debate this idea a little more. Some are contemptuous. Oh, come on, Paul. (laughs) We were with you up until this point, and now you're talking about flesh and bones coming back to life. Come on. I can't go there. We are scientific people. We're men of Athens. This is RDU after all. Like we, we know about science, right? We can't believe this. There's just no way. And the materialist will always reject this. The one who says that the only reality you can know is what you can hear, smell, see, taste, or touch will reject this out of hand. Dead people don't come back to life. Or some will try to rescue this doctrine. Some will say, you know, I don't think we have to get rid of all of it. I mean, there's a lot of good moral teaching in the Bible. I mean, this, this is something that you can build a civilization on. I mean, this is something we need. Otherwise, it would just be a free-for-all. And we can't just have the church go out of existence. Think of all the good it can do in the world. So let's, let's rescue this somehow. Let's, let's say it doesn't really matter what happened to Jesus' body. What matters is something spiritual. And you see this all over the place when people see Easter as meaning simply, well, there's life after death. Just kind of a generic idea. Rebirth is possible, just like the butterfly. No, Easter is about this historical event, and you either take it or you leave it. But many professing Christians have said, no, I don't want to get rid of all of it. Maybe there's some spiritual, non-literal interpretation we can put on this. And most famously, there was a brilliant, humanly speaking, a brilliant German New Testament scholar named Rudolf Bultmann, and he's simply exemplary of, of what many think. He famously said this, it is impossible, it is impossible to use electric light and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries, and at the same time, believe in the New Testament world of demons and spirits. It's just impossible for modern people to use modern amenities and avail ourselves of modern resources, and at the same time, believe in demons and spirits. Come on, we got to be freed from all that. Take the kernel of truth, yes, New life is possible in Jesus somehow, but it doesn't really matter what happened to his body. There's a spiritual interpretation. So there's an effort to rescue this. And this is 
for evangelistic purposes, mind you. This is so that we can make the gospel more palatable to modern people. Don't we want modern people to believe? So we've got to change the doctrine. They can't accept this. So let's extract the meaning from the event itself. Then we're good to go. And then no one can question that. That's just not the teaching of the New Testament. You can only embrace that interpretation by doing great violence to this passage we read. Why does Jesus say, touch my bones, look at my hands, look at my feet? Why does he say, give me some fish, if it doesn't matter what happened to his body? So you can reject it, you can try to rescue it, but all of those will fail in the end. There is only one right response, and that is to receive to receive this, to receive this as the turning point of history, to receive this as the event that will determine your eternal destiny. And the Apostle Paul makes it so clear in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe, what? In your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But notice it's believe in your heart. It's not just to acknowledge this as a true event. Satan himself knows that Jesus rose from the dead. He just doesn't want you to know that. And he wants to mask it and cloak it in false truth. Satan knows it's real. You can believe this happened. You've heard it your whole life. You've never even really questioned it because you grew up in church. But do you believe in your heart that this is the only way for you to be saved? That the same Jesus who shed his blood on the cross for you is the same Jesus who was raised bodily and literally for your salvation? Do you believe that in your heart? It's that conviction in your heart that enables you by the Holy Spirit to confess Jesus is Lord. Is anyone ready to confess that today? Maybe for the first time. Maybe to reaffirm your commitment. This is what it all rides on. The church, the Christian faith, the gospel, it depends on this. My prayer is that you wouldn't reject it, that you wouldn't try to reinterpret it or rescue it, but that you would receive it as the only hope for you, for me, or for this world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we confess that we can easily dismiss a simple narrative like this. We can think, so there are hands and feet that can be seen and touched. So Jesus ate some broiled fish. What difference does that make to me? Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would see just how pivotal this is for each and every one of us and for the world. Father, by your Spirit, may we be gripped by this. May this not just be an idea or a truth to discuss or to debate, but may it be impressed upon our hearts irreversibly. May we be convinced from our hearts that it's true. May we believe. May we confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is the only one who can save a wretch like me. 
Thank you, Father. Thank you that in Christ, death itself has been conquered. Death itself has been swallowed up in your victory. So that now we can say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Father, may that praise resound and echo in our hearts today and into eternity. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.